I really appreciate the fact that some of you stay. We are going tonight to Luke chapter 6, sixth chapter of Luke's gospel. I trust you've been reading through this wonderful book. <clears throat> if you have, you probably have also gone ahead and jumped into the book of Acts at some point in time to get both uh, the prequel and the sequel. Uh, there's not a part three, but there are two wonderful parts. Luke chapter 6, we are still in the fairly early portion of the Lord's ministry. Uh, this, uh, the events in the section we're going to read are recorded uh, not only by Luke, but other gospel writers as well. Our attention this morning is just on the first 11 verses of Luke chapter 6. Please follow uh, in your Bible. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. And his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed what they might do to Jesus. The Lord Jesus, in his ministry, on several occasions, purposely did miracles on the Sabbath. Now, I suspect he did miracles every other day of the week as well. But there are times when the gospel writers make it very clear that Jesus intentionally healed someone on the Sabbath in front of Jewish officials to get their attention. And boy, he had it. Uh, every one of the gospels records something of Christ uh, healing or doing a miracle on the Sabbath. Uh, Luke mentions it here. He's going to come back to it again in Luke chapter 13 in an extended discussion in the synagogue. And he's going to do it again in Luke chapter 14 with a discussion with the Pharisees. Uh, John records uh, in three different chapters 
extended discussions that came about as a result of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. I love it when Jesus did it in Jerusalem. Oh, capital city of spiritualism. Pharisaic capital of the world. You talk about being watched. It's like being at Gestapo headquarters. Jesus, in Jerusalem, intentionally healed on the Sabbath. He could have said to the man, come back tomorrow. Right? So Jesus is very intentional in this. Luke makes it clear even here uh, in this passage in Luke 6 that Christ, uh, especially in the second situation, verses 6 through 11, that, that he is very intentional in doing this on the Sabbath. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. First of all is the intentional grabbing of, the, of the, the attention of all of the people and the officials. The second part of it is uh, that when he was in the synagogue, he was there to observe the Jewish um, custom of meeting on the Sabbath in the synagogue. This was not something commanded in the Old Testament. The synagogue system uh, arose while Israel was in captivity, and it was kind of the Jewish answer to helping their children learn what it meant to be Jewish. They, they started these schools and gathering places on Saturday so they could read what scriptures they had and teach it to their children, and this was the beginning of the synagogue system. By the time of Christ, of course, it's assumed that if you are a practicing Jew, you're going to be in a synagogue on a Saturday. And so Jesus is simply observing what is a, a good biblical practice on the Sabbath. He goes to the synagogue. But because he was a teacher and recognized as such, he, they often gave him the floor. And, and he then often used it uh, for the purposes not only of teaching and declaring the truth, but also of showing his miraculous power. And so Christ intentionally is drawing attention to his works on the Sabbath. The first time is not perhaps as intentional as the second in our text here. In verses 1 through 5, I want to go through this passage, and then we'll look at a couple of Old Testament passages before we go on to verse 6. It just so happens. Don't you love it when the Bible says that? It, it just sort of happened. Yeah, it, it just sort of happened, all right, in God's plan. He was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath day. It's interesting to me that the text doesn't have anyone complaining about Jesus walking too far on the Sabbath because that's probably what he was doing. Remember, the Jews had added all kinds of rules and layers of rules to the original Sabbath laws, and one of those rules was how far you could walk on the Sabbath. Jesus is probably going from one town to another or something like that. His disciples are with him, and, and the guys are hungry. Yeah, well, that's what it's like to travel with guys, right? They're hungry. And so they're going through a grain field. Now, this was, I don't think they were going through someone's grain field and trampling the grain. I think there was a pathway between the fields or along the fields, and they were walking on this path. But the grain was within easy reach. The grain would have been thigh high or waist high, and it must have been in the spring because in Israel, the grain is ripe in 
May, June, that kind of a time frame. So that places this event in those spring months. And so the men are walking along and they're grabbing a couple of heads of grain and they're rubbing it between their hands to get the chaff off of the grain. Uh, if you eat the grain with the chaff, that's kind of like the hulls on popcorn. It gets stuck in your tooth, you know. Gives you something to do for the next half hour. Getting all those hulls off of the grain so that they could then just take the kernels and eat the kernels. Now, you're trying to bite into sun-hardened grains of wheat or oats or barley or something like that, you can break your teeth. But at different stages, the grain's harder or softer. But I mean, this is what they have for food. There's no, nobody has a, you know, a portable grist mill to grind some of it and take time to make cakes. So they're just eating some grain. They're doing what's there. They're eating what's there. If they'd been walking through a vineyard and the grapes were ripe, they probably would have picked some grapes. They would have picked some figs off of a fig tree. They would have had some apples or something else along the way. But even here, even here are some Pharisees who see what Jesus is doing. Are they following him around? Watching him like a hawk? Are they standing at the edge of the village watching him go or watching him come? Where are these guys? His disciples are out in a field, and the Pharisees see it. I think that shows us how much these Pharisees already, early in his ministry, they're already antagonized. They're already antagonistic against Christ. And so... You'll notice that they do ask a question in verse 2, but they don't ask a question as a learner. They don't ask the question, would you explain to us how it is that it is right to harvest grain on the Sabbath? That's the question of a learner. The question of an accuser is, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So they're assuming a hostile position already against Christ. And Jesus answers them using the example of David back in 1 Samuel when he was fleeing for, from uh, Saul and uh, I think it was Abiathar, the high priest, that gave him the consecrated bread which was supposed to be for the priests alone. But the example there is that a man of God took that which was for the Lord and used it to help someone in need. And so Jesus is saying... Here are my disciples, and they have a need for the food. And what he doesn't say, but what is implied, I think, is I'm the Lord of the harvest. I've made the harvest available for them. If I say they can eat it, they can eat it. He hints at that when he answers them in verse 5, and he says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of the Sabbath, of the seventh day of the week, the Lord of the day of rest. Uh, this is different from the Old Testament name Lord Sabaoth, which is the Lord of hosts. This is the Lord of the Sabbath. And of course, the Sabbath was the quitting day. It was the day the Lord quit the work of creation. So this is going to draw to mind this statement by Christ, which, by the way, is a statement of deity. 
The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. That is a statement. I'm God. I made the Sabbath. That's why it's lawful. What he's saying is, I made the law, I can change the law. I made the law, I can break the law. You did that when you were raising your kids. You changed the rules once in a while, didn't you? You could do that. One night they had to be inside by 7 o'clock. Another night they had to be inside by 8 o'clock. Another night they couldn't go out at all. You're the boss. They might not like it. But the Lord of the Sabbath can change the Sabbath law. He can use it however he wants. Well, it brings to mind two distinct passages of Scripture that the Jewish people would have recognized. And I would like you to go to Genesis 2 with me. We'll take just a minute here and a little bit more time in the book of Exodus. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation account, which continues in chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all of their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he quit on the seventh day. I do not like to use the word rested, because it makes us think of being tired out and exhausted and needing to rejuvenate and recharge our batteries. That's not what happened. He quit. That's what it means. He quit on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. He was finished. He didn't need to do any more. So verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he quit from all of his work which God had created and made. Now when you and I quit on the seventh day, it is because we need a rest. And I think that's why it got translated as rest. But it means to cease. To cease work. It's what you like to do at 5 o'clock or 3.30 or whenever it is you get to punch a clock or walk out the door or lock the door and go home. You quit. Unless you own the place, then you never quit. It's on your mind all the time. But God quit because he was done. Who, would, who was it that quit? Who was it that established the seventh day as the day on which he quit? Do you know, if God wanted to, he could have made six days in a week. He could have said day one, work day, day two, work day, three, four, five, six, work every day, work every day, work every day, work every day. After day six comes day one, start working again, never have a break. God could have done that. But he's the Lord of the Sabbath, so he created one day of the week for his creatures to be able to benefit by quitting their labors and resting and focusing on some other very important aspects of life. The Lord of the Sabbath, when Jesus said, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, his audience, their mind would have gone back to Genesis 2. Their mind probably would also have gone to the book of Exodus. If you will, turn over there to chapters 19 and 20. We'll begin in Exodus 19. <clears throat> the Ten Commandments are first given in Exodus 20, but in order to appreciate uh, something about them, we must come to chapter 19 and recognize the context. In verse 19, in chapter 19 of Exodus, verse 1, In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. 
and the, so they're described. And they are camped in front of the mountain at the end of verse 2. Verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all of the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. God calls Moses up onto the mountain, and Moses makes God makes Moses an amazing offer that he has never made to any people before nor since. And it was the offer that God wanted Moses to go down to the people of Israel and say to them, I myself have brought you out of Egypt by the strength of my own hand. I have brought you out to myself on eagle's wings. I brought you out here into the wilderness to spend time with you and to call you out here to call you together as a nation, form you as a nation, and give you the opportunity for you to be my people and for me to be your God. I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests, not just a handful of priests in the kingdom, but the whole people would have the opportunity to have a relationship with God and to be spokesmen for God. This is a pattern in the ancient Near East that was called the Treaty of the Great King. Quite often when kings would conquer a neighboring nation, the king... Uh, whoever he hadn't wiped out in the battle that it took to conquer them, he'd gather all of the people together, and he would stand up and declare or write it down and have someone announce as a decree, I am the great king who has saved your life. You sense a politician in there somewhere? I am the great king who has spared your homes and given you back your life as a gift. And now I'm giving you the opportunity to be part of my kingdom, which means taxes, basically. But this was, the, this was very common in the ancient Near East. A king would conquer a territory, and he would bring the people into a special relationship with him, basically as subjects of his reign of terror. The treaty of the great king. He would be declaring to them how powerful and how great he was, how useless it was to resist. But God does this, giving this opportunity to Israel as a declaration of his marvelous grace and loving kindness to Israel to draw them into this relationship and give them this opportunity. So he says, Moses, go down and tell the people. So Moses goes down, tells the people in verse 7, he calls the elders together, and he set before them all of these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all of the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We like it. They voted. They agreed. Moses went back up on the mountain, takes the words of the people up to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And so over process of time then, the Lord gave Moses ten commandments, and he said, since 
We're in this covenant relationship. This is how this covenant relationship is going to work. So go with me to chapter 20. Then the Lord spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, the greatness of the Lord. Doing all of these things for Egypt, doing for them what they could not do for themselves, saving them out of a desperate situation. They had been down on their knees crying out to God to save them from the slavery. And he has done that by his mighty power. He has brought them out. And he said, all right, since I am your, the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Is that a reasonable demand? Absolutely. He's the one who saved them. You will have no other gods before me. You won't make yourselves any idols or likenesses. Verse 7, you will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And verse 8, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, and so on. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This verse reinforces the truth that Genesis 1 declares that God created the whole earth in six literal days. If it was six eons or six ages, you and I would be working a very long time before we got a break. But it was six literal days. And God uses that fact here to instruct them on the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. Remember the seventh day. That's Saturday. Remember the seventh day of the week. Keep it holy, keep it set apart, keep it consecrated, keep it devoted to special, unique purposes. Who made that rule? Who? God did. Who is the Lord of the Sabbath? The God whose voice thundered on Mount Sinai is the Lord of the Sabbath. What is Jesus saying, standing in a cornfield, a wheat field, talking to Pharisees? The Son of Man who's standing here in front of you is the Lord of the Sabbath. <coughs> I am the one who thundered on Mount Sinai, who shook that mountain, who covered it with thick darkness and caused the people to fear. I'm the God of creation who in six days created all that there is and gave you a rest on the seventh day. Who do you think you're messing with? That is one of the clearest statements of deity that Jesus ever made. That's right up there with before Abraham was, I am. There is no mistaking what Jesus meant. They didn't have to go back home and debate and say, what do you think he meant by that? Do you think he was saying? Yeah, he was saying. In other cases, they take him out and try, they try to take him out and stone him for saying those things. They, they know exactly what he is saying. Jesus is using the accusation, the negative question, the accusatory question of the Pharisees to declare his deity. You talk about in your face. That's it. These are some of the background passages that he's drawing to mind when he says the Son of Man is the Lord of 
the Sabbath. There's also a cultural element that's going on in Luke chapter 6, and it would be helpful for us, I think, to take just a couple minutes and talk about this. The Sabbath rules of the Old Testament were later clarified. Uh, there were some details added by the Lord, not a lot, but some details added by the Lord. Um, the Lord didn't want people to starve on the Sabbath day. He wanted them to be able to eat food. Moms, is there any work to provide food for your family on the Sabbath day? Some of you are old enough. How many of you are old enough that in your family you observe some form of Sabbath rest on Sunday? Okay. In my house, you didn't, you, we didn't work on Sunday when I was growing up as a kid. There was no laundry done. I mean, we did eat and wash dishes, but there was no laundry hanging on the clothesline. There was no lawns that got mowed. There was no weeds that got pulled. Thank you, Lord. There were some things that the Lord wanted the people to do. But what had happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the Jewish officials, the Pharisees and other groups, had started to add more and more and more regulations to all of the laws. Their thinking was this. If, if breaking one of the commandments is like falling off the cliff, and God doesn't want us to fall off the cliff, then what we're going to do is make a bunch of rules that will be like a fence or several fences that will... So, so that we don't even get near there. So, so now the barrier is here. Don't cross that. And what we're sort of protecting you from falling off the edge. With all of these man-made rules, well, pretty soon, the rules that they had made didn't even look anything like the original rules. You can only walk so many steps on a Sabbath day. Another place, uh, Jesus is going to ask them, listen, you guys, if your ox falls in a ditch on the Sabbath day, what do you do? Say, too bad, Bessie, see you tomorrow. No, you haul it out of the ditch. You take care of things. You do what needs to be done, especially when it comes to compassion and help uh, and ministering toward others. So, so the Jews had added all of these extra regulations to the Sabbath rules. Remember that the Old Testament laws we've seen in Exodus 19 and 20, the laws, the Ten Commandments were given to a people that God had already brought into a covenant relationship. The Ten Commandments were not given to the people so that if they obeyed them, they would become God's special people. In chapter 19, he made them his special people. And in chapter 20, he said, listen, if we're going to be in this relationship, this is how it's going to be working. This is how it's going to happen. I, I'm the chief guy. Okay, I'm the top dog. I'm God, you're not. Pretty simple. Be nice to each other. That's the other half. Love one another. Love me, love each other, and everything's going to be fine. You're going to like this covenant if you do those things. That was the, the, the Ten Commandments were were for God's covenant people to walk with him in the fellowship of the covenant. Now, unfortunately, every one of, them, every one of those people was going to fail miserably. But God was going to use that to teach them their sinfulness and also to bring them to the blood, to the substitute, 
to the lamb that would be slain. He was going to give them the avenue of the transgression offerings and the sin offerings and the thanksgiving offerings and the peace offerings. And he was going to give them a way. He was going to give them the tent of the tabernacle where there would be one way for them to come into the presence of God as a people and they would be able to continue that relationship even though they fell short, even though they sinned because they had the blood and their sins could be covered up with the blood. And so the Ten Commandments were given not to make the people perfect, but to show them they couldn't be. But there was still a way. Because God is a God of grace and God is a God of mercy. The book of Exodus makes a statement about the mercy of God that's quoted over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. God is a God of mercy. And so even though the keeping of the Sabbath was never intended to make people good, the keeping of the laws was never intended to impress God. The law was a compass to point them to the need for a blood sacrifice. And the repetitious nature of the blood sacrifices, year, day after day and year after year, holiday after holiday, thousands and thousands and thousands of animals, generation after generation, century after century, were to point them to the ultimate answer that God was going to bring. He was going to bring one Answer, the Messiah. Who would be the suffering servant of God? And he would be pierced. And he would die. The law was all to prepare the people of Israel in this covenant with God. Now, it was something that people were going to have to take by faith. And the great failures that we see in the Old Testament are people who didn't believe it. But the great victories of the Old Testament that we see are the people who understood it and came to God not by the law, but came to God by his grace in the blood that was shed and tried to live the law to please him in their walk with him. This was the heart of the Old Testament law that God wanted the people to get. And by the time of the New Testament, it's like out in the fog someplace. And the people aren't getting it because they've been so overwhelmed with all these useless, needless regulations, all of these extra requirements. By the time you get to the New Testament, it seems to be that the New Testament people, uh, the Jewish people especially, were trying to keep the law because they were proud of who they were. They highly prized all of the rituals. They saw it, uh, the keeping of the law, as a way to show all the heathen around them how righteous they were as a people. They saw all the obligations as a long rich, a list of ritual demands by demanding God, but they were the people who could keep them. And so it became a matter of great pride. And as a result, out of their pride and arrogance, they were always policing each other about this. It's not just Jesus that picked on. We get down to Jerusalem in the book of John, and Jesus heals a man. He's walking around carrying his bed, and he's arrested. Essentially, he's arrested by the spiritual police. Because he's breaking the Sabbath. He's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. You can't do that. Now, when you talk about carrying a bed, 
You like carrying mattresses up to the second floor, man? Do you like to do that? I hate moving mattresses. They're the worst thing to move. No, no, no. We're talking about a little mat that rolled up. We're talking about, you know, you see people take a, a mat to yoga class or at the gym or something. It's that little thing that's tucked under your... That's what the guy's carrying, and he's arrested for it. Because he's breaking the Sabbath laws. He's working on the Sabbath day. So these people were policing each other over all of these Sabbath rituals. They were policed, they were, the, the Jewish leaders were policing the Jewish people. And if there was a Jewish teacher or leader, oh my, he was especially going to be looked at under the microscope. Everybody was watching to make sure no one crossed the lines. And Jesus knows this when we come to Luke chapter 6 and verse 6. Uh, we see this uh, coming into play in the situation. It's interesting to me that we're not told the exact location of either of these incidents, the one in verse 1 through 5 or the one in verse 6. Ultimately, it really doesn't matter. Jesus was in so many synagogues, and probably similar things happened in many of those synagogues. But notice in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. It just happened to be someone in the crowd who needed healing. I would suspect, if you gather any group of people together anywhere in the world, there's someone in the group who needs healing. It's not unusual to have someone in a group who has something wrong. It would be really unusual if you got a group of people together and everyone was right and healthy. So it's not unusual that there's a man here with the withered hand. But you'll notice in verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees are watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. Let me stop and digest this. They're getting ready to pounce on him. They're looking for a reason to pounce on him. Okay, here, here's how it's going to work. If, if he, I, I know how we can get him. If he does a miracle on the Sabbath and proves he's God, we can get him. Wait a minute. Is there something wrong with that thinking? But they just said that. They're watching him to see if he's going to heal someone. Who can heal? Nobody else. The Pharisees can't heal. The scribes can't heal. Even the doctors couldn't heal. So they're actually watching to see if he proves that he's God so they can accuse him of something. Sin doesn't make much sense, does it? Darkness doesn't make much sense. Spiritual darkness is, is so blind, they can't even think straight. And these Pharisees do this over and over and over again throughout the Gospels. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. I love that statement in verse 8. He knew what they were thinking. I think there's a good chance a lot of people in the room knew what they were thinking. But the average... Jewish person in the room wasn't going to make a peep. They weren't going to draw themselves to the attention of the Pharisees, but they were waiting to see what was going to happen. 
And you can be sure that wherever Jesus went, by this time he's, he's known to people, wherever he went, people are waiting to see what's going to happen. And I love the way Jesus handled this. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. Has he healed anybody yet? No. Has he broken the Sabbath? Asking someone to stand up and take a few steps, is that breaking the Sabbath? No. So he has the man standing there somewhere near him in front of the crowd. Everybody else would be seated in the room. And Jesus said to them, all right, I have a question for you. And I, I suspect that this time he's looking right at the Pharisees and the scribes. But he may be looking around the room at everybody because everybody's watching. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Which would be lawful? Well, nobody's going to go with the harm thing. Right? Which is lawful, to save a life or to destroy it? Well, nobody's going to go with the destroy answer on that one. And the only other thing he says, looking around at all of them, you see what that, in verse 10, looking around at them all. I wonder how long he did that. Looking around the room. And every eye is on him as he's looking around the room. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. That's all he says. That's all he does. Did he touch him? say be healed but everybody in the room knew who healed him but who could accuse him of healing but he obviously healed now the Pharisees have a dilemma How are we going to pin this on this guy? Their bigger dilemma is, he just healed a guy. He literally just healed that guy, didn't even touch him. How does he do that stuff? Well, obviously, he's God. Obviously, he's God. So the Pharisees get in a huddle. Uh, what a huddle it must have been. Guys, we got a problem. We got God here, and he's messing up our systems. How are we going to get rid of this God guy? Doesn't that sound ridiculous? But isn't that exactly what they're doing? And they did it for all the rest of his ministry. Everywhere he went, constantly opposed. The fact that he was God was right in their face all the time. But they cannot bring themselves to admit it. But they know they got to get rid of him. 
Amazing, isn't it? The Lord Jesus was not afraid of confronting unbelief. He was not afraid of confronting empty ritual. He wanted the people to understand that the law was not given, uh, excuse me, that man was not given for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was given for man. He's going to teach that later on. God did not create Sabbath first and then say, well, i got to have somebody that I can plug into that. I guess I'll make some people. No, he created man. And for the sake of man, he gave man a day to have a different kind of a schedule, a different emphasis. Instead of the sweat of the brow kind of work, it was the ability and opportunity to worship our God kind of work. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He came not to destroy the law, but to what? To fulfill it. He perfectly fulfilled. Well, he, he never did break the Sabbath, by the way. Even though he was accused many times of breaking the Sabbath. He never once broke the Sabbath because that would have been a broken commandment. And Jesus never broke a commandment. Do you believe that? Jesus never broke the Sabbath. Everything he did was fulfilling the purpose of the Sabbath. And using it as lessons to teach the people. All around us, and it's still our own tendency, is to get caught up in the rituals and the, the routines of religion and to lose focus on the heart of it, on the person of God. We get involved in the busyness of God and lose sight of the person. And I think we're prone to do that during the week, in our, maybe even in our own worship. It's easy to fall into routines. You ever find yourself singing two or three verses of him and not even really remember what you're saying? You were thinking about dinner or you know, getting the oil changed on your car or something, and, and you kind of snap back to reality and realize, hey, I'm here, I'm, in, I'm here to worship God. That's what we're here for, is to worship our Savior. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, one of the most powerful statements by the Lord Jesus Christ in his entire ministry, so clearly declaring his absolute deity to the Jewish people. Oh, they understood it too. Some of them didn't like it, but they got it. Let's keep going. Luke chapter 6, keep reading, Lord willing. Uh, I think we have another missionary next Sunday night. And then, uh, Lord willing, we'll be back in Luke after that. Father in heaven, tonight I pray that you would dismiss us with your blessing. Thank you so much for sending your son uh, we, we could never have imagined the way that you did it and the way he did things. We, we just Your ways are so marvelously far above our ways and your thoughts above our thoughts. Thank you for revealing Christ to us in this book and in this chapter tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.